If you're joining us this morning, last week, uh, if you weren't here last week, we studied Psalm 20. And in Psalm 20, David is facing an enemy that is greater than him. So going back to Psalm 20, look at verse 1. It says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, and may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. David was facing an enemy, and the prayer that is being offered on behalf of David is for God to protect or deliver him from that enemy. Now, down in verse 5, we see an important motive that is accompanying these prayers. Verse 5 says, May we shout for joy over your salvation or your deliverance. So please protect us. Please deliver us. And we're asking that we might be able to shout for joy when your salvation comes. And in the name of our God, we want to set up our banners. So the idea here is that when the war comes the victory banners would fly because God delivered them from the enemy. And their prayer is, on the front end, that they would be able to set up those flags, let them, let them blow in the wind. But those flags would not have their own name on them. In other words, it isn't their strength that got them through this battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. So the victory belongs to the Lord. The flag is a testament that God brought us through this and he won the battle. So in verse 7, the psalm gets really to the heart of the issue. In verse 7, the question is, what are you going to trust in? So verse 1, please deliver me. Verse 5, we want you to get the glory, God. Verse 7 says, this is how you have to proceed. This is how you're going to trust. And so, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But here is, here's the worshiper saying, we, in this moment, when we're facing the enemy, needing deliverance, we're going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. So their confidence, now in Psalm 20, for being delivered is a confidence that is not placed in themselves. It is a confidence that, place, that is placed in God. And last week, my encouragement from the psalm was, as you are facing the enemy, and our enemy is sin, our confidence can be that God is great to defeat sin in our lives. We can trust him. And where that sin is defeated, that battlefield where the war is fought, God's banner is raised up, and we say, he gets the victory. Look what he can do. Come, come, come to him, because look what he can free you and deliver you from. We don't say, as the people of God, we do not say, I just need to dig deeper. I need to find strength within myself to live a victorious life. That is not the Christian life. Instead, we see God, Almighty God, and we trust him alone to deliver us from sin. And we pray that he will do it for his glory. And when it's for his glory, it's like this amazing beaming light that we're attracted to. And we're saying, we want more of that to shine through our lives. So this morning, it would be good for us right now to think, what sin in my life needs to be slain? 
what do I want the warrior God to show up for? And take out his sword and say, that sin needs to be put to death, but I can't do it. It has to be through God who brings us through the battle and gives us the victory. So, young person, what sin in your life right now, maybe it's relational, maybe it's anger, what sin in your life right now would you say, I just want to be free from that sin? Ladies, what sin is it right now that you feel like is just got a foothold on you and you're saying, I want that sin to be put to death? And men, what is it in your life right now where you're looking back over this last week and you're saying, I, I can't dig deeper? There isn't anything to dig deep into in myself. So God, I, I don't have anything left. I want you to put that sin to death. All right, have that in your mind. And what's been an encouragement for me, I probably benefit the most from this. I shouldn't say that because God can bring the benefit to you in an even deeper way. But I'll say it this way. I have benefited greatly from going through these psalms and just thinking, God does the fighting on my behalf. I'm going to pray for God's glory to be on display in my life. And I want that sin to be put to death. And what is so cool is to see two, three, four days go by. I'm like, I haven't even, that sin has been defeated. And then I go to the flagpole in my heart and I'm like, raise the flag. God did that. That is awesome. Whatever's going on in your life, if you can bring in one thought this morning and you're saying, I want that sin to be put to death, it would be good for you to have that in your mind right now. So over and over again, we're saying, God, that's what I'm praying for deliverance for. So the big idea for this morning is simply this. Christian, pray with confidence that God will deliver you from sin. Um, sometimes I think we over-theologize things. And it, does God want you to put away sin? Yeah. Does God want his people to have victory over sin? Yes. Does God say, I'm here to help you slay that sin? Yes. All right, so very practically this morning, let's just think what's true. I can come to Almighty God and I can pray with confidence that God will deliver me from this particular sin. Okay, so Psalm 20 and 21, they go together. We could preach them in one sermon, but we're doing them in two. Psalm 20 was the prayer of petition as David was facing the enemy. He was going into this battle. Psalm 21, as we're looking at this morning, is the prayer of praise where David is able to look back and say, God, you did it. Psalm 20, facing the battle. Psalm 21, looking back and seeing that the battle has been won. And we see really the hinge at the end of 20, verse 9, which says, O Lord, save the king. May he, that is God, answer us when we call. And now Psalm 21, verse 1, there's a shift that happens. To the choir master, a psalm of David. 
O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. So the end of 20, God, please hear my cry. Beginning of 21, he's heard his cry and he's answered it. So now we get to see the joy of God defeating sin. All right, so point number one to the sermon as we look at Psalm 21 is there's joyful confidence in the strength of the Lord. There's joyful confidence in the strength of the Lord. Now, verse one starts off with two statements that are parallel in nature. Verse one says, in your, in your strength, the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. And so you see those two parallel statements, you see rejoicing happening, and then in the second phrase, you see exult with a U happening. Some of you might not be familiar with exult. What is that? We know what rejoicing is, but exulting is for your soul to be lifted up in joy or in elation because of a victory. So we could say it this way. Last week, the Detroit Lions spent the week exulting in their preseason win over the New York Giants. And they exulted so much that they lost yesterday, all right? But they were exulting. They, they were gleeful. They were elated that they won last weekend. What is it that David is rejoicing and exulting about? Well, specifically, David tells us that he is rejoicing in God's strength in statement number one. And then in statement number two, it's in your salvation. Now, in verse two, David says, you have given him his heart's desire. So out of his strength and out of this deliverance that has happened, God has heard the prayer of David and David or the king is saying, I have been given my heart's desires. That was a prayer that was happening in Psalm 20. So look back at Psalm 20, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. Was that prayer answered? Was the enemy defeated? The answer in 21 is yes. And what God did now brings joy and exaltation. David sees God as being victorious. Have you experienced this joy? I think many of you have. You've experienced God's strength freeing you from sinful habits or sinful thoughts. And there's joy. Some of you could give testimonies of where you've been in the past and how you've petitioned God over and over again because a sin dominated your mind or dominated your life. And through your prayers, God delivered you from that sin. And you look back and you say, God did that. There's, there's rejoicing because as a prisoner is set free, not because he was able to bend the bars back, but somebody came in and delivered him. You felt as though, and you experienced as though, God came and delivered you from that sin and brought you out. Do you see God answering these kinds of prayers in your life? If you have, you know that there is joy. Some of you might say, I don't see that. I just don't see it happening in my life, and I want to see it. Let me give you four possible reasons as to why God might not be bringing deliverance 
or why you might not seeing, be seeing God bring deliverance. Number one, you might be cherishing sin in your heart. Psalm 66, verse 18 says this, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Also, think about this, especially husbands. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Well, what might happen if I'm not honoring my wife and dwelling with her in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered? You see, it's God's prerogative to look at our lives and say, man, if you're not walking in obedience and taking care of the daughter of God, why should I be giving you deliverance? Perhaps there's something there where God is not hearing your prayer because of cherished sin. Second, because of lack of faith. God might not hear our prayers because of lack of faith or might not answer them. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those. He rewards them with deliverance at times for those who seek him. Third, might be a lack of actually praying. James 4 verse 2 says this, You have not because you ask not. Have you brought this petition to God, asked him for deliverance from that sin? Number four could be simply self-centered prayers. James 4 verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. So I see this habit that's in my life and sin has consequences. It naturally comes with consequences and you don't like the consequences. So I just want that sin to be put to death. God, will you just put that sin to death so that I don't have to have the consequences of my sin so that I can live life the way I want to instead of for your glory? If you see any of those areas of, of your life, it would be good for you to say, God, I, I, I want to repent. I confess that to you. And then be bringing this sin to God, saying, God, I'm asking for deliverance. And when he gives you that deliverance, there's going to be rejoicing. There's going to be exaltation in what he has done. In verses 3 through 6, as we continue on, David mentions four ways that God has shown his strength. Let's look at these for just a minute. What did God do for David? Verse 3, God granted him kingship. It says in the second half of the verse, you have set a crown of fine gold upon his head. You can see David with the kingly crown there. God established the king. Verse 4 says that God gave him eternal life. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Verse 5 God gave him glory and majesty. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. And then verse 6, God gave him gladness of joy. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So God was close to him, and that was joy. So only God can do these things. Only God can make a leader. Only God can give the life that is needed to the leader. Only God can give glory to him and be present with him. That's what's happening in these first few verses. And you might say, okay, so how do we contextualize this in such a way where we get the principle of it and we cross the bridge into application for today? Well, let's keep thinking about the Psalms. Last week I told you that this is a royal psalm. 
It's about the king. And there's two important truths about royal psalms. Number one is this. The king's success is a gift for the people. The king's success is the success of the people. So going back to the Detroit Lions, this last week I saw an article online that says, the Lions are contenders for the Super Bowl this year. Can you believe that? I don't know. But they said it online. All right, so let's go to January and let's say they make it to the Super Bowl and you've been given tickets. And you are on the 50-yard line and the place is just amped up and it's the fourth quarter and we're down by four points. So we need a touchdown. And there's 15 seconds to go and Detroit is on the 30-yard line and the place is just rocking because we want to see a victory take place. And so their quarterback, whom I can't remember, I remember Stafford, but not the guy that's here now. Anyhow, you know who he is. The play takes off. He drops back. Wide receiver goes to the end zone. This play un unfolds with him running to the right, scrambling to the right, runs to the left, scrambles to the left. He, he gets out of tackles. The clock is winding down. He heaves a pass to the end zone. Wide receiver jumps up, catches it. Touchdown, game over. And the whole place just explodes with energy. And you're sitting on the 50-yard line next to your buddy right here, and you're high-fiving, and you say this. You say, we just won the Super Bowl. Is that true? Did we just win the Super Bowl? Well, we all know what that means. Yes, because you associate yourself with the Lions. Now, I don't. I associate myself with the Bears over here. <laughs> I'll be sitting on the sideline in November because they might not make the playoffs. But when the Lions win, for you as a fan, you're saying, I'm part of this, and I get the excitement, I get the victory, I get the spoils of this. We just won. When the king goes to battle and God delivers him from battle, he's coming back and the people say, we get the spoils of victory. So the royal psalms about the king have overflow for the people. And when the king is praying for deliverance, we're knowing that this deliverance is a deliverance that we share in. We get the bounty of the victory that happens. So royal psalms have a direct implication for us. Second is this. As you read through verses 3 through 6, you look at those verses and you're like scratching your head and you're like, man, did David actually have days that went forever and ever? Was David actually brought into the presence of God? And you might be able to say, well, he was given eternal life because of salvation. Royal psalms, here's the second thing, have their fulfillment, or you could say royal psalms point to Jesus. So as you read those verses in verses 3 through 6, you can see that Jesus inherits kingship. Look at Hebrews 1 on the screen, verses 8 and 9. This will guide us through the four points if you wrote them down just a minute ago. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. But of the Son... 
he says, what does he say of the son? He says, your throne, son. And notice what he attributes to him, divinity, deity. He has God, your son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So there's kingship right there. There's also eternal life that the son has because this throne is forever and ever. Look at his majesty. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So you see kingship attributed to Jesus. You see eternal life in him. You see majesty in Jesus. You see joy. Here's the joy, the gladness with him. All right, so we cross the bridge. We see that Christ is the fulfillment of this. And now, just as the king's victory was the people's victory, Christ's victory is your victory this morning. If Jesus is our king, we share in the blessings that have been given to him. So how might we find encouragement here of Christ being given the victory, if you will. We could run to a lot of different passages. God worked a victory in David's life. We know that God worked a victory in the life of Jesus. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, 18 to 23, that the work that God was doing in Jesus is a work that splashes up over the side and lands on you as well. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. And where is that power directed? Toward us who believe. Now, what is this power all about? It's the power that is according to the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, defeating sin and death, saying, no, it will not have a grip on my son. And look, exalted him, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above, here's his kingship, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age present, but eternally, also in the age to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power, the might, the strength, the deliverance that God worked in Jesus at that point is splashing over, and Paul is saying, I want you to know that same power. So when I look at sin... In my life, right now, I know that the resurrecting power of God that he worked in Jesus Christ, the strength when he looked into the grave and said, be raised from the dead, is a strength that God says is yours to have. Paul says it. I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Can't put that in a bottle. And this power is so much greater than the sin that you're facing. So you can say, okay, God, I'm coming to you. And I have joyful confidence in your strength that that sin can be put to death. That's where the hope is. And so that's why the flag goes up because we say, God, you're the one who did this. I see your power and strength in Jesus. It's mine as well to apply to my life. 
in a different way of saying it, Romans 8, verses 9 through 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We know that. But if Christ is in you, here's the king, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus, there's his power, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, not finished yet. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I don't have to live according to the flesh. I don't have to give in to sin. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so, folks, I just come through this, and I'm saying the victory over sin is a victory that we have because of Christ. And as you see those sins at work in your life, let's go back to God and say, God, I see your strength. I see your deliverance for the king. That is something for me to take in faith and be delivered from this sinful habit and that sinful habit. Verse 7 now closes out this first section here. And he answers the question of why there's joy. Like, how does this joy come to us? And it's very simple. Like, how do I appropriate this joy? One hand, it's response to the Lord. It's trust. Verse 7 says, for the king trusts in the Lord. Okay, so there it is. There's the battle that we see in chapter 20 or Psalm 20. There's the enemy. I need deliverance from that enemy. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so when you're facing the sin, don't trust in your own might. Don't trust in your own strength. Say, God, I see that sin at work in my heart. I'm trusting you. All right, so think of this illustratively. A plane takes off from Grand Rapids heading to Atlanta, and it gets up to cruising speed and cruising altitude and hits turbulence. And a 12-year-old boy is sitting on the back of the plane where most of the turbulence starts to buck the plane. And he looks out his window and sees the ground 30,000 feet underneath of him, and he starts screaming. And he starts looking for parachutes. And he doesn't see any of that, but in his mind he's saying, I can't trust this plane. I have to do something about this that is getting to me. And so the screaming, the moving around, the searching for parachutes, eventually he starts making his way for the door. I got to get out of here. The pilot comes out of the cockpit and is able to stop the man. He gets him back into his seat. And he says to the young boy, young man, I've made this trip to Atlanta over 4,000 times over the past 25 years. And I'm telling you that I know how to get there. Don't jump. Trust me, you don't have to do this in your own strength. I am the one that will get you through. 
You can't see the cockpit. You can't see all the instrumentation that I have. You can't see how far we are from Atlanta. But I know everything about this trip. And I've proven it over and over again to be able to land the plane in Atlanta even when we face turbulent air. So, young man, you have two options at this point. Sit down and trust me to get this plane there, or you can try to jump. And so the boy wisely sits down, trusts the pilot. He takes the pilot at his word and obediently follows his instruction. And the pilot brings him through that turbulent time and lands the plane. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in God. He is our pilot. He is the one who can bring the deliverance for us. And yet, it's not simply trust on our part, because if you look at the second half of verse 7, we see God's part. Through his steadfast love, through the steadfast love of the Most High, he, that is the individual, will not be moved. He won't be conquered. So this is steadfast love. This is that kind of love that is unwavering, committed. I'm going to love you no matter what happens here. I'm going to do my part. It's covenantal love. So to go back to the, the plane, the pilot comes out, and he doesn't say, young man. He says, son, you know me as father. You know what I've done over the years. You know that we're in relationship with you. You can trust me to get you to Atlanta. I'm your father. I'm the pilot of this plane. So Christian, God is mighty to deliver you from sin this week. Trust him. God loves you. Trust him. If you're a young person who says, God, I trust you. I trust your strength, I trust your power, I trust your promises, I trust that you will deliver me from sin. God will bring you through that sin and give you victory over it. Woman, you go into your prayer time, say, God, I trust you right now with the outcome of the season of life. I don't have control over this, and my temptation is to give in to fear. My temptation is to sin. Man, you see that sinful habit and you're saying, I'm done, I'm tired of it, I'm sick of it, I want that to be put to death, or I don't like what I'm thinking or what I'm speaking. God, I need that to be put to death. Trust God. Bring it to God, pray about it, and God will deliver you from that sin. Verses 8 through 12, now we'll move through this quickly. My sermons tend to be long on the front end of the of the, my notes here. So we'll move through this. By the way, I'm on page 9 out of 11 here, just in case you're wondering. Second half of the sermon, we'll move quickly. There's joyful confidence in God's wrath. There's joyful confidence in God's strength. I hope you will go from here knowing God's strength is for me this week. And I hope you'll also know that there's joyful confidence in God's wrath. Look at verses 8 through 12. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. 
Look at this picture. You will aim at their faces with your bow. Pretty graphic words. And sometimes we don't exactly know what to do with this language. Here's God who's saying, I'm going to bring defeat to the enemy. For David, or for the king of Israel, think about the Assyrian army, Babylonian army, Philistines come in, they're pillaging villages, killing people right and left, killing children. You look at that and you say, man, they've got a hot place in hell. Because when you think about that, you're like, they've offended me in a deep way, especially if I'm a resident of that village or a citizen of that kingdom. They've offended my dignity. And here what we see in verses 8 through 12 is sin does not stop at an offense of human dignity. Sin is an offense against almighty, holy God. It's an even greater offense against his holiness. It's an even greater offense against him in his dignity. God will bring justice. God will bring his wrath. And you notice all the tenses in verses 8 through 12. The Lord will, the Lord will, he will, he will, he will. Future, it's coming. He will do this. But right now, folks, there is a season of grace. If you're a non-Christian here, you need to know both God's strength to deliver and you also need to know God's wrath to condemn. We all need to know that. God takes sin seriously. And so right now, God is not pouring out the cup of his wrath, bringing vengeance upon people. That will come. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10, says this. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. You're suffering right now. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That will happen. Yet here's a God of grace who says, I'm offering you for the forgiveness of sins to come to me. I'm offering a relationship with you. Come to me. Non-Christian, if you're here this morning, you need to know this about God. He invites you to come to himself. But a time is coming when God's wrath and judgment towards sin will be poured out. Come to him. Christian, you can know that God is more offended by sin than you are. All of the hurt and all the pain that you might be experiencing from other people's sins or maybe from your own sin, either one, you can know that God takes that even more seriously. And yet someday, through his strength and might, he will bring justice. God will do that, and we can know that God will settle it all. Verse 13 concludes. Verse 13 comes full circle by saying, be exalted, A-L-T-E-D, be lifted up, O Lord, in your strength. Remember, that was the prayer from verse 1. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. So be exalted in your strength. And notice how he concludes, we will sing and we will 
praise your power because you are exalted. We want to see you high. And this whole thing has been about, God, deliver me from my enemy. And for us as Christians now, 3,000 years after this was written, God, deliver me from sin. Strength, your might is needed. Last week I said our prayers are like arrows. On the arrows of those prayers, there's a request. And let's say defeat sin. But all of our prayers have a target. What are we aiming at with those arrows? And the aim of these arrows in verse 13 is for the glory of God. God, I want your glory. I want you to be known. I want you to be exalted. We want to sing about you and praise you for your power. As we look at Psalm 21, David is saying it's happened. Deliverance has happened. Christ has won the battle for us. We have the victory that he's given to us. And now we have access to God to enjoy the grace and mercy that we need. We can have victory over sin. So as we go or conclude, I should say, with this psalm, a few things just to take away. Number one is this. Know that through Jesus, know that through Jesus, God has provided you with his strength and power to defeat sin. Know that through Jesus' victory, God has provided you with strength and power to defeat sin. Number two, as you look at sin this week, bring your request with the glory of God as your motive. God, I want your flag to be unfurled. You get the victory over this battlefield. And then number three, confidence, trust. Trust that God answers prayer and that he does it powerfully so that we might have joy, so that we might rejoice and exult in the victory of God. Let's pray.